These strikes are wrong at a time when negotiations are still going on. But parents and the public have been let down by both sides because the government has acted in a reckless and provocative manner. After today's disruption, I urge both sides to put aside the rhetoric, get round the negotiating table and stop it happening again. Um, I listened to your speech in Wrexham and you talked about the Labour Party being a movement. A lot of people in that movement uh, are the people who are on strike today and they'll be looking at you and thinking, well, you're describing these strikes as wrong. Why aren't you giving us more leadership as a leader of the Labour movement? At a time when negotiations are still going on, I do believe these strikes are wrong. And that's why I say both sides should, after today's disruption, get round the negotiating table, put aside the rhetoric and sort the problem out. Because the public and parents have been let down by both sides. The government's acted in a reckless and provocative manner. Well, I spoke to Francis Moore before I came here and the tone he was striking was a very conciliatory one. Do you think there's a difference between the words they're saying in public and the attitude they're striking in private in these negotiations? Are there negotiations in good faith, would you say? What I say is that the strikes are wrong when negotiations are still going on, but the government has acted in a reckless and provocative manner in the way it's gone about these issues. After today's disruption, I urge both sides to get around the negotiating table, put aside the rhetoric and stop this kind of thing happening again. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a statement you've made uh, publicly and you'll make to me and this will be broadcast obviously, but have you spoken privately to any uh, union leaders and, and expressed your view to them on a personal level, do you say? Well, what I say in public and in private to everybody involved in this is get around the negotiating table, put aside the rhetoric and stop this kind of action happening again. These strikes are wrong because negotiations are still going on, but parents and the public have been let down by the government as well, who've acted in a reckless and provocative manner. Um, you're a parent, I'm a parent, a lot of people watching this will be parents. Um, has it affected you personally, this action? Has it affected your family, your friends? I mean, and, and what is the net effect of that going to be on, on parents having to take a day off work today? I think parents up and down the country have been affected by this action. Uh, and it's wrong at a time when negotiations are still going on. Parents have been let down by both sides because the government has acted in a reckless and provocative manner. I think that both sides should, after today's disruption, get round the negotiating table, put aside the rhetoric and stop this kind of thing happening again. Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. back to Leftover. This is Arjun. And I'm Rory. I'm done being reckless and provocative and I'm ready to put aside the rhetoric and get around the negotiating table. <laughs> uh, indeed, indeed. It does seem like strike season is upon us. Many, many negotiations are happening. Uh, just days after the RMT union uh, calls a strike for London tube workers in response to uh, proposed changes to the night tube. Um, which is going to be opening up for the first time in like two years post-pandemic. Um, and obviously that caused its own set of uh, usual complaints from the usual suspects. Um, and just days after, the Universities and Colleges Union is preparing to go on strike in 58 campuses up and down the country. 
And to discuss this and much more is uh, author, professor of political economy at Birkbeck and not uh, famed Bollywood actor Ashok Kumar. <laughs> great introduction. Thanks great so introduction. How are you guys doing? That's a nightmare name for Google, isn't it? It's not CEO friendly. I can always tell when CEO someone's friendly. like, definitely Googled me. They're like, do you know that? Yes. yes I, know. <laughs> I know about that guy. <laughs> He's like only literally one of the most famous Bollywood actors of all time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, but yeah cool uh yeah thank, thanks so much for joining man and um yeah i'm guessing uh yeah like i was saying before you've been very busy i take it over the last few days uh preparing for the strike which is about to commence tomorrow right yeah um, so it's 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 starting tomorrow and um yeah it's been a big of a, a bit of a build-up but it's kind of like you know the ways that the kind of um uh, anti-labor laws or the reforms around strikes have changed the ways in which we can go on strike because there's like all this kind of bureaucratic procedures. You have to get a majority yeah. of people to submit and all this shit. But I don't, I actually think in lots of ways, building up that infrastructure, I'm not saying it's good they passed those reforms, but in lots of ways, it means that you've got to have your shit together which then means that we hit the ground running, we mobilize more of our membership, we have more of like rank and file yeah. kind of engaged. So yeah, that's, that's what's happening. It's happening at 58 universities and some universities have already gone on strike, like Goldsmiths is on strike right now. The, the 2016 Trade Union Act, so education, defense, and uh, what was it, health, I think, mm. they're, sort of, um, they're sort of under special measures. So you need 40% of the union voting for it. And so... If if you don't vote, if you abstain, that's that's basically a vote against. You need forty percent of the entire union, and so, like some of the unions are massive as well. You need fifty like, percent in, in uh, education. Fifty percent, yeah. sorry, not forty. Yeah, yeah, fifty percent, sorry. Yeah. Um, which means that it's it's not fifty percent of the people who submitted the ballots. You need fifty percent to submit it. And right of now, everyone. yeah, everyone. And right now, obviously, like people are in different addresses. People aren't in their office. Yeah, yeah. Um, like I was going in my office, my kind of whatever departmental office place and i could see like seven eight like ballots in people's mailboxes and i'm like ah oh! not that i could like do anything i'm not gonna like do anything about it but i'd be like could i could see that like yeah. that that was just making the ability to get those submitted that much more difficult but um yeah but yeah i mean the thing is like i said it's like in some ways it means that you have to have that you have to build that infrastructure and then it means that once you have that, it's a form of a kind of political education as well and consciousness building. And so, yeah, it's not a bad thing in, in general, but it's bad insofar as like, you know, Manchester lost by like one vote. And, you know, they're a mm, very yeah. militant union. And so it doesn't even yeah. make any sense. But yeah, they're, they're having another vote, I believe. That's right. Uh, yeah. yeah, sort of mid-December. So hopefully that will... Uh sort of uh, turn around but yeah it's, it's just extremely hard isn't it but you're right once once you get those votes it means that so many people are mobilized so everyone is ready to strike when when you do get the the thumbs up absolutely yeah basically and also it's like if you know it's the the revote that they're doing is a number of different universities any university that branch that got over 40 percent but less than 50 percent is basically reballoting so it's not all bad do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about what the strike is exactly about? You know, just just sort of the lowdown yeah. from the beginning. Yeah. Okay. So basically, what you have is uh, universities. Well, the vote that we took 
excuse me, are on two uh, kind of tactics, which is one is the strike, and the other one is called ASOS, not the not to be confused with the brand. It stands for actions <laughs> short of a strike. I always get confused with it, honestly. But which, like, basically it means that, you know, you don't work outside of contracted hours. You don't take voluntary tasks. Uh, you don't, like, pick up for absent colleagues or, like, you know, reschedule lectures and that kind of stuff, that kind of thing. But, you know, lots of lecturers, lots of professors, lots of academics work outside of hours and work in kind of unusual ways. So this is, like, it's a quite an effective tool, effective tactic. To, to It can be. Um, and the, the other one is obviously the strike, which we're going through now. And the pensions, the, the, the pension system, and I'm not, I'm not an expert on pensions, to be honest, but uh, is, is, is basically that the current proposal is that they want to cut 35% on average of the value of our pension. Now, of course, if you're older and you've been in the system a while, it's grandfathered in so that you, know, you get less cut in. If you're new, it'll be upwards of 40, 45%. Like I'm a relatively new academic. It could be upwards of almost you know, half my pension. Um, and this is on top of the fact that the USS, which is the uh, university supranational, um, it's basically the trustee uh, that, that run our pensions. I mean, they're kind of glorified just financiers that like, you know, kind of they fatten their pockets and they, they could just put this in a yeah. mutual fund and they would be probably more effective than having these Dumbo sit around and, you know, um, enrich themselves. But basically between 2011 and 2019, they, alongside University of UK, which is like the vice chancellors and the other faceless bureaucrats that run our institutions, pushed through cuts that represent around 240,000 pounds of cuts per average member. So it's already that our pensions have been raided. And, and, and so like, just to keep in mind for everyone, like the universities, I'm not complaining about my pay, about my wages necessarily compared to a lot of other people, but compared to sector across the advanced capitalist world, the university sector in the, in the UK gets paid significantly less than others. And, and, and one of the ways, one of the sweeteners around that is to pay, Hey, you have a fairly robust pension. And that was always the case. And now obviously it's not. So, but between 2018 and 2020, they use this kind of technical provision, which basically is like saying what it's called technical provision that basically just says what is our projected earnings to pay people out, you know, because it's like it's it's got to be see, like, you know, analyzed in the future. And yeah. they said that, OK, this is unaffordable. And the way that the USS, they, by they have in the USS, the way that they assessed that and they evaluated it, that it was unaffordable is by this methodology. They said that if every single university in the country went bankrupt, apart from a single university, pick one at random, let's say Sussex University, you take their budget plus the assets that USS have, which is like 75 billion or something around that, and you take that and you have to pay out to every single member from now until you know whenever they retire and the existing members. And so when you assess it with that kind of doomsday scenario, yeah, but obviously... That seems like a very fringe case, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it, no, no, it's obviously bonkers because it's like, that's not going to happen, firstly. Secondly, it's like, even if that happened, the last thing on our minds that would be, we'd be worried about is like, oh no, the universities have gone... You know what I mean? Like the last time we had Martin Wolf has this great piece last week uh, in the FT, which is basically said the last time it's happened was during like the Weimar Republic. Like there's like literally no possibility of this happening. And if it did, 
you know, the, the possibilities of other things are also open, you know? At least we know nothing bad happened after the Weimar. Absolutely <laughs> nothing. Absolutely nothing. Everything was just smooth running after that, yeah. It's just such a, it's just such a mad system to get your head around when you realise that, you know, you're just gambling with people's money, which yeah. they've saved for retirement. This is how the universities are run, Marie. Like, it's like, I've been on the board yeah. of governors at, like, LSE because I was a student nerd. And then I was like, I'm now the, pro- <laughs> the staff board of governor. I don't know why. I'm not, I don't even know why I'm always in these positions. I don't really, I hate it. But basically, it's filled <laughs> with the worst like banker ghouls you could imagine and all they're yeah. brought in to do they're like wheeled in there like and they all they're all they say is they're like they're like we need your you have these kind of upper echelon creamy layers of the university being like we need your expertise and they all they go is cut wages buy more buildings and you're like what expertise i know what these ghouls are gonna say and that's exactly what it is at uss you have these finance ghouls it's a it's a box it's a box checking exercise at that yeah. point. Just like make sure, okay, we had someone else represented in the in the room who made the same decisions anyway. Exactly. It's like when they go, hey, we did at the university, my my university, Birkbeck, they're like, we did this consultation. Consultations are obviously yeah, exactly. complete dog shit, always. Because they're literally like, hey, and it turns out they love everything about us. They love the changes we want to make, and you know, they hate the union. And you're like, wow, that's that's really convenient. But so it's like obviously USS is made up of ghouls and their mates, and they're like, oh, we yeah. wanna we what can we get away? What how do we streamline this? How do we get you know, employers, and they're in, in the pocket of the employer, obviously. They're like, how do we make sure the, the, the employer pays less? How do we ensure that we enrich ourselves? And, you know, like, we also, like, make the liabilities that they're drawing up are completely um, constructed in, in order to, like, reduce their risk by a, 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 an absurd level, right? So, for example, they assessed, they assessed the 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 robustness of the economy you know because it's all it is is investments right it's like a glorified mutual yeah. fund they assess the robustness of the economy at the height of the covid crisis and they're like this is the how, yeah, yeah. how this is how the economy is going to be forever and so they're like we're like no no you got to reevaluate this they're like no no we can't so it's like that that means that we're even in a greater deficit right so like it's 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 really that's the first that is the first part. We're just saying the union's just like, look, we just want account for reasonable risk. You can say even runaway inflation, falling asset prices, things that are like remotely even conceivable. Fine, do it, but you can't you can't risk assess for the end of the world. You just can't do that. The the operating uh, costs of the USS is one hundred twenty five million, and it's it's about eighty billion the fund. So I mean that's that's a hell of a lot of money you're throwing away. That's a billion over about eight or nine years. Do you know what they do? They do nothing. They have a meeting once every few months, and they go like they like I don't know. They eat like I don't know panda meat, and they're like we we just are gonna put it in this fund and that fund for you know since 1986 they've been demanding for just some ethical investment, and they're like oh no. So it's just like. That's how, they just don't. They don't give a shit. There's no way to hold them accountable. It is just gambling, isn't it? And that's it's, all it is. It's no different to when you just take a punt on like the football match on the weekend. They have no idea whether it's 
It's going to go up or down or it's, it's it's just a mad way to run. This is the economy. This is like the like the, the money that you will inherit when you're frail and old. If the line goes down a little bit, suddenly like it gets devalued and it's all lost. It's just a mad system. Yeah, I mean, right now my pension is like, I don't know, 18,000 pounds. If this happens, it'll come down to like 10,000 pounds. I'm like, look, I'm not saying I want a decadent lifestyle, but like, Ten thousand pounds <laughs> a year? What? I mean, now where am I gonna? I've got to move to like Aberystwyth or something. I don't know why I'm shitting on Aberystwyth. I'm just trying to pick random <laughs> some place outside of London that I can think of. Um, but like, it's just I'm. I just I don't I don't know how. And sometimes I think about other colleagues of mine. I mean, there's a lot of mobilization, and I try to explain this to them, and they're just like they're just like. Pa- there's like passengers on the on the on the road of life. They're just like, okay. And you're like, oh God. How are you gonna survive this? How are people gonna survive this? I think that's imposed very intentionally on people. The uh the sort of language of finance is very opaque on purpose, just to you know make people a bit confused and upset and just hope that they don't question any of this too much. Yeah. It's like if you tell a person that you know, like some random numbers in the magic stock market went down, so you've <laughs> lost half your pension. That seems quite unreasonable. Yeah. But if you dress it up with all of this, if you obfuscate it with all this like flowery nonsense, then it's, you know, people, they, they think it's a bit above their station. Oh, no, totally. I mean, I'm even talking to people in my department who do to teach finance courses and and other things. I was just describing it yesterday at the departmental meeting, like trying to describe what was happening. And people were just like, hey, man, you just got to chill out. You're just stressing out too much, man. And I'm like, what? You have kids, man. You got kids. Anyways, it was just, it's obviously frustrating. But look, look, there's a lot of people mobilizing around it. And I think it's like, I actually think we can win it. And I'm not just saying that as like, just like what you say when you're trying to like, it's not a pep rally, right? But I'm like... I I think there's a few ways that we can win it. Um, but yeah, I'll go through that in a minute. But I think it's the second part is around what's called four fights, which is, um, you know, uh, pay, inequality, casualization, and workload. The primary demand there, let's be honest, is around pay. The other stuff is kind of yeah. in there because it's important to highlight a more symbolic thing. But the fight is really 2.5% increase for every spine that UCU bargains on in the in the pay, pay scale, because we've had a twenty percent yeah. real term pay cut since you know two thousand eight or two thousand nine or something. So yeah, two thousand and nine to two thousand and nineteen, there was a twenty percent real wage drop. Yeah, that's right. It's pretty huge. And but vice chancellor salaries went up, uh, went up steadily each year. It was three point five percent. They went up in two thousand and nineteen, and. Vice chancellors are the actual chancellors, by the way, because it's they're the actual big bosses. Because it's, it's a really dumb system where, yeah. like, the chancellors, uh, you know, they're sort of a symbol. It's more of a, it's more of a nominal role. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a similar yeah, thing. ceremonial yeah, role. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's like it's like it's like it's like subconando Marcos or like. It's like yeah. Yeah. it's like Gaddafi was like Colonel Gaddafi. He was never General Gaddafi. 
It's kind of like that. It's kind of like that. They're channeling that, basically. It's, like, it, it's some like queen owns all the swan shit. Exactly. Everything in this exactly. is just all, exactly. dressed up in all this dumb ceremony. I could yeah, never be the chancellor. I can only be humble servant to the vice chancellor. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, my, the queen the, is the chancellor. A, 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 of a, real, a real man of the people. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, that, at Birkbeck, the head was, it was called the master until we the oh union demanded they change it to well vice chancellor i kind of like it as being called them calling them the master because i'm like i want them to be like like i want them to be like i'm a like a i'm a ghoul i'm a, i'm i want I want, <laughs> yeah. I want i want it to be i don't want any bourgeois mystification i want give me all of the horrible things i'm a terrible man that's that's my title. That's what I want, you know. Like, like when I when I hear master, I just think Leonardo DiCaprio in Django Unchained. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I exactly. just think, you know, it's a real sort of like mask off moment at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. But, um, but yeah, like uh, like you were saying, you know, I think um, like with regards to the pensions, obviously being like a central, uh, you know central component of these strikes and these negotiations that are happening at the moment. Um, in 2018, there were strikes for like two weeks, weren't there already? With, it was a record, in, in, I believe. In, in response to uh, these pension changes as well, right? Yeah, so there were other pension changes that were uh, put forward. There were two-week strikes, and then the person who was running the union, Sally Hunt, who'd been running it for however long, uh, basically went behind closed deal, adored, didn't listen to the membership. So we kind of almost yeah. like organized these spontaneous demonstrations that overwhelmingly the membership rejected the deal, um, which is yeah. really like not very common. And, uh, and so they had to create this special committee that was then putting forward a number of proposals. Obviously that wasn't even listened to by the, by USS, and so this is kind of a protracted thing, but it's like this is t- attached to that, but also a new set of attacks as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, when you're talking about, um, you know, how you think it is possible for the UCU to actually win these demands. Um, do you want me to give you the I breakdown mean, of how, how I think it'll ha- how we have to do it? Well, yeah, just but yeah, just, I mean, just before we get to that, I mean, I think it's important to kind of like contextualize just in, in like, especially in the UK, like since Thatcher and the dismantling of the power, of, of, you know, of, of the power of the unions, especially the miners union, um, you know, was like, that was the real battle that Thatcher knew that if she could defeat the miners union, that she could pretty much defeat anyone. Um and, uh, you know, anti-union legislation has been like, you know, commonplace, you know, pretty much since the 80s. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Neil Kinnock was really complicit in that as well. Sure. Obviously sure. They, as soon as he got in in 1983, he just went straight to war with Arthur Scargill yeah. and the, the National Union of Mine Workers. Yeah. So it was it was very much a bipartisan attack. And they could have reversed it under Blair. Bargaining. They could have reversed yeah. the open shop stuff from 86, which decimated yeah. them and all the strike legislation that she passed in 86, following the Fleet Street strikes. And obviously yeah. Blair was like, why would I reverse this? I love capitalism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. That's, that's, yeah. I think that's important to say because 
you know, a lot of people yell at, you know, like Ed Miliband and Sadiq Khan when they always reliably go against unions and just always condemn the strikes. But that has been the standard in the Labour Party for a very long time. They have yeah. reliably been the sort of B, B team of capital, essentially. Totally. 100%. But um, I, I just wanted to say, like, even within that context of, you know, the, the sort of declining power of unions for the last, you know, three plus decades, the uh, arguably two of the unions with, you know, still a significant amount of bargaining power and, and, and yeah, just negotiating power, I would say, are the two big education unions, the UCU yep. and the NEU. Um, and, I mean, would you say that there's anything sort of specific about the education sector which um, which has made these unions particularly, um, you know, maybe a little bit more vocal or, um, you know, successful? Um Oh, this is a good question. So I think there's a few unions that are quite powerful still in the country. It, you're right. It, the education unions, to some extent, I think that the like transport unions as well, like we yeah, talk about yeah, the RMT, sure, sure. there's two, there's like, basically, I think if we're going to analyze workers power anywhere in the world under capitalism, obviously, is we have to analyze where it sits within the production process or whatever, right? So it's like hmm. the two yeah. primary ones, there's lots of other factors, but the two primary factors in bargaining power for workers that are structural, the first is marketplace bargaining power and the second is positional bargaining power. And so marketplace bargaining yeah. power is like, do you have limitations on access to the labor market, right? So it's like, you know, what Marx called the reserve army of labor or you can call the reserve army of the unemployed. Mm -hmm. If the reserve army is less, then that bargaining power of workers goes up. So like, for example, coders right now might have greater bargaining power, but they want to de-skill that. So they're trying to build, construct an army of coders in 10 years time, their bargaining power might get less. I, I'm just using that as an example. But so that's tied to like marketplace bargaining power, right? And if you look at like, and you're seeing, and we, we can get into like how that's changing now, really, in particularly in the Anglo-American world. But, and the second is positional bargaining power. And the positional bargaining power is that like, you know, within capitalism, there are core functions and there's peripheral functions. And within an institution, there's core functions and peripheral functions. And within the production of commodity, there's core functions, peripheral functions, a city, same thing, right? So if we live in London is like basically a center for the production and the circulation of capitalism, the London underground is a central node, central point in that. So if you can strategically mm -hmm. choke that, you can bargain at a greater level. It's not automatic. It's not like a neoclassical argument. Oh, you know, workers get what they deserve, blah, blah, blah. It's literally like, and it's not even a skill question. What is sk skill doesn't even exist. Skill is nonsense. But skill is like how much access you have or don't have to the labor market. I mean, like, for example, French doctors make a third as much as American doctors. That's not because they're less skilled. It's because American, the American Medical Association has lobbied successfully to restrict the number of doctors in America to increase their bargaining power. It has nothing to do with skills. It's all constructed. And frankly, I think it's criminal. But it's that's just another example. But so that that's that. Whereas positional is like, okay, so where does it sit in the production of the commodity? So like dock workers. So let's say you're a worker, you're a uh, crane operator. And you're a crane operator, I don't know, in Aberystwyth or some other village. Um, and your versus you're a crane operator at a port or a dock that anywhere that crane operator at the port or dock has much more power because of their disruptive power is greater so power is really about at that level is about disruptive power right 
So in education, unlike other sectors, education is this weird place where if you look at schools, obviously schools are essential to the disciplining and the production of the next layer of the working class or you know it's like essential also in forms of like childcare in order to ensure that you know their parents can go and work the, and the be employed and stuff. The parents can go to the workplace exactly. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. But also you it's 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 an essential component to the to the ongoing durability of capitalism as a system. Uh yeah, similarly 100%. universities, right? Universities are this weird places where like they're both places where uh, try and, you know, in some ways hold the power structure and elites accountable in some sectors, in some places, but also more importantly, there are places that like, uh, you know, ensure the durability of the system. They ensure a durability of the class system. They ensure that like you can justify some people making insane wages because you're like, oh, they have this degree, which is completely constructed. Right. So it's like, it's, it's yeah. because of that and a lot of other factors, it's not just another sector. It is like a, almost like a bridge that both restricts people and ex- access allows access to various parts of the labor market. So it's like an essential component within capitalism. And so, yeah, you can have, you know, you've had attacks on universities a lot, but they're trying to e- attack the elements of it that try to hold the power structure accountable or like teach people more radical perspectives they're not attacking like stem subjects they're not attacking subjects like business they they love that shit so that's why that essential component but also the fact that it's not movable like even coal in this country was movable they like thatcher destroys coal not because this country didn't go on to use coal for decades and decades they just imported it it was to destroy the unions and their power and the and class consciousness but it's like with universities, it becomes very difficult to move it. It's not you like you can't quite outsource it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's... just yeah. another thing about the the sort of the value of the product which universities produce. Are they like research is extremely valuable, mm-hmm. but sort of undergraduates. Um, sort of study isn't as much. So generally, they they sort of structure the universities so that you know the huge fees for undergraduate study go to subsidize the research yeah. which is then largely privatized you know like pharma- the pharmaceutical industry yeah. purchase so much of mm-hmm. the research and then profit from it yeah i mean in some ways that's it depends on the institution i don't disagree with you i agree with you yeah i think in like if you go to like warwick imperial even like you know queen mary they have large research budgets they get a lot from the research excellence framework they get yeah. a lot of private money because they have stem subject right subjects right yeah. so there you're absolutely right i mean there was a slogan back in the 60s uh, that was like the university is a factory and they would they said that like in 68 and stuff yeah. almost like an insult right they're like oh it's mm. a factory whereas i'm like it's <laughs> a factory that is a description not in the pejorative of the fact that like we need to treat it like that why because there's this kind of illusion of what the university is the university is this really like you know this place of learning blah 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 bullshit the university is a factory that produces degrees and that degree is then liquefied and fungible and traded to like add value to people's labor power to sell on the market as a commodity and increase it increase their wages give them more labor market fluidity we need to be honest about that, not because I'm trying to like shit on universities. I think they need to be protected and defended, but because basically if we don't treat it like that, we will not win. 
And the reason we won't win is people will be like, oh my God, if we like withdraw our labor power and don't go, don't, don't teach, the university will like come crawling. It's like the university doesn't give a shit about teaching. The university doesn't care. In some universities that are having deficit problems, yeah. they probably prefer teaching because you have to register your pay, register when you strike, which means you get your pay docked. And they're probably like, oh, this is a cost-saving measure, right? So, yeah. like, the, the the thing that the university cares about, if the okay, if students are consumers, which they are, I mean, people are like, well, let's not treat students as consumers. Let's not treat them as consumers. But let's be honest, they are consumers. And they, we're the workers and, you know, and, and other people are workers the product we're producing or the commodity we're producing is the degree, then we have to think mm-hmm. what is the most strategic way to disrupt the production process, right? And the most strategic way to disrupt the production process is the marking boycott, to refuse marking. Because if you don't mark, the value of that degree is completely constructed. It's constructed based on the legitimacy of the marks. If you undermine the legitimacy of the marks, that's how you win. That's the only way you win, really. I mean, look at Liverpool. They had, you know, 47 people that were supposed to be made redundant. They were striking, striking, nothing happened. They did a marketing boycott, got a full 100% pay doc, and they won within days. They won everything. So that's how we win. Yeah, that, that's the, the key thing. The, all the value does come through professors. So, you know, you just have to be relentless with it. You know, in 2018, they just kept at it for two weeks. I think yeah, the UCU know that you. It's uh, they know what position they're in. They know the the importance. Well, it's it's all the value that a university produces. So you've just got to you've got to believe in that and stand by it. But I think also what's important is um, sort of the money, the marketization and the commodification of the sort of turning u- the university into a kind of industry. I think. Both that negatively affects both students and professors. It it, it affects uh, students because obviously the uh, the fees become extortionate. You know the uh, the government becomes pressured to lift the caps and let the let the universities profit as much as possible. But at the same time, obviously they there's also pressure to downwards pressure on the wages of of professors. Uh, so that that two way sort of um, movement, I think it the important thing is in this in this situation, both the the students and the professors are on the same side. So there has to be a lot of uh, collaboration between those two against the university if you have to kind of make it through this and and succeed. A hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, like the you you know the um, the uh, National University students have backed it. They did a poll. They said something like seventy six percent of students back it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I mean, at, yeah. at my university, it's like they're like, "Oh, you guys are kind of lame. Like, why are you just doing this? You need to go like all out. This isn't even militant enough." And I'm like, "Yes, I agree." Um, but I also like. <laughs> You know, it's like similar to like 68. I'm not saying this is 68 France, but there was all this stuff that was written about that at the time in 68, you know, in France and other places where, people, you know, they you yeah. have this book, Student Power, all this shit. Basically, they were like, OK, look, the purpose of students is to like occupy our buildings, occupy these things, really drive the movement in a way that like because, you know, unions and traditional work, like traditional unions are bogged down by, say, routine and bureaucracy. Students, in lots of ways, yep. can play an effective role, right? And students can't withdraw their labor power. Like, workers can withdraw their labor power. Students aren't withdrawing labor power. If they don't go to class and do a student strike, it's not like 
that doesn't affect the university at all. It's not disruptive at all. Um, but what they can do is occupy universities. So like that's been an effective tool historically um, to try and confront the university and cost them and be disruptive in that way. So I do think it's like students are overwhelmingly supportive. The problem is typically when you escalate it to a marking boycott, the thing is I always always have these debates with with staff. I mean, over we've had three strikes over four years. You know, yeah. I, it's it's like it's they're always like, well, what about the students? And I'm not saying that's not a genuine concern. Of course, students matter. Are you like UCU has always had the position when like NUS was like, oh, graduate tax, and they got rid of like the free education. UCU's always lobbied and supported and backed uh, free education. But yeah. what it it's like we should students are important uh, people we should think about. But at the end of the day, it shouldn't obstruct our ability to do the marking boycott because obviously it's upsetting for students, but also we got to do it. It's got to happen or else we're going to lose. That's the, that, that's so important. The, the introduction of university fees, it wasn't just, you know, fleecing students out as much money as possible. It creates this relationship where, you know, suddenly instead of collaboration, the student and the professor, they're at competition with each other. Totally. The student exactly. wants to exploit the professor as much as possible. You know, they want to get the, as much bang for their buck for the nine grand they're paying. And obviously the, the professor just wants to, you know, earn as much as possible. But it's it, it's creating that, that competitive uh, atmosphere, which... Uh, it makes it easy to divide people. You know, like when, when people who oppose the strikes, the first thing they're saying is, you know, these students, they're paying nine grand and look, what, you, you're going to strike? You get, well, why, well, how could you do this to them? So you, you, it's very it's intentionally divisive. Yeah, also it's like the, every year that they've paid nine grand, we've been losing wages and yeah. the, 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 the pay for senior managers and USS, you know, like boneheads has been increasing exponentially. So it's like, like yeah. you know it's that you're absolutely right it's like it's creating the i mean look i started teaching in 2011 like right after this stuff was instituted but it was being grandfathered in so like i had two years yeah. of people that i was teaching that were uh that were paying three grand and then after that mm-hmm. it was like nine grand and i have to say that the difference is just it's like remarkable yeah. it's like you it went yeah, from yeah. people being like I mean, almost a little bit too obsequious. And I think there's just a British tradition of being like too much like that. But then, I mean, there's also Americans who do that. It's too much. But um, but then it went from that to being like, you know, uh, the customer knows best. And I'm like, man, yeah, what? Yeah. Like, you know, it was yeah. kind of nuts. Like, it, it, I was like, and then, it's I very like, that, yeah. I'd like to speak to the manager kind of behavior. Totally. And I think like a lot of this really came to the forefront last year during you know, like the the first couple of lockdowns and, um, you know, the impact that, that, the, that the lockdowns had on students in particular, the number of students who were made homeless, for example, I mean, it is really fucking yeah. shocking and it's, it's really, really fucked. Like, especially like international students, for example, you know, who were really yeah, like, left yeah, out, left totally. out in the cold. Um, um, and, you know, there's, there's obviously, you know, like when it comes to like university accommodations, for example, you know, like the private companies that are, uh, you know, 
set, you know, running those accommodations, we're still just making a huge amount of profit. Absolutely, you know, like just like they really are the, the absolute little, scum little, of the earth, honestly. Absolutely, you know, like and and the <laughs> stuff that was ha- the, the stuff that happened in like Manchester University, for example, you know, like where like they weren't even like allowed to leave their accommodations and they weren't, they just like, locked given, the doors, didn't exactly, they? Exactly, just like <laughs> really like hor- horrific kind of shit, right? Yeah, so like you can violent. totally understand like the grievances that a lot of students had, but then at the same time, you know, like uh, around this time last year, I remember. Uh, like there was uh, this, what was a very blatantly astroturf campaign uh, of yeah, like students uh, demanding a refund for their tuition fees, <laughs> right? And yeah. uh, and those students included people like Emily Hewitson, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like you know, like just like full on, um, you know, uh, yeah, like and now now. It'd be probably that like that Sophie girl or whatever, you know, like just yeah. these like really right wing uni students that they'd like find one, you know, and um, it is psychologically it's so powerful having a debt over your head. It's yeah, it's, like, it's coercive potential is so big. Just 100%. knowing that you're you've got to pay back all this money, it makes me like it makes you sort of empathize with, even though you can't really empathize, but you know like how the system is in America where you. When you leave a job, the first thing you've got to think is, okay, what's happening to my health insurance? Yeah, totally. It's yeah, purposely, yeah. it's no, purposely but think, but think, but think, like about, think about it this way. Absolutely. Why is it in America, honestly, why is it that you don't have a system that even like the, you know, like the, the uh, um, Chamber of Commerce, all these organizations actively lobby against having a system where employers aren't meant to, like basically mo 90 80% of american healthcare is given to the people that have it is given by to the by the employer it's not given but it's like part of your whatever system yeah why would you have why wouldn't you have uh the state paying that in the form of a social wage and then basically employers and businesses and small businesses and all these other people that they constantly bloviate about why wouldn't they want to like not pay that out you know what i mean like but yeah, but then yeah. you think about it as such an important ideological tool that like if yeah. you do not work, if you are not working, you are not only destitute, you may die. Like your children may die. <laughs> like that threat of that like existential threat hanging over you. Yeah. Like there's a reason why America doesn't have anything, uh, any semblance of a welfare state, but you have like basically like the largest prison system in the world bigger than every other country like the next 10 countries combined it's because like when you have a surplus laboring population a, a reserve army that isn't employed and is isn't able to subsist because there's no welfare provision then what do you do you stick them in a cell so it's like of course of course yeah. you have and at least they have health care there but like of course you have yeah. these institutions that indirectly indir- would benefit but indirectly won't benefit, I guess. So they're like, okay, we're gonna lobby to not have a system of healthcare. That's mad. It's madness. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and um, you know, sort of speaking about this um, this tendency towards neoliberalization of academia, and you know, just like the marketization, right. the commodification of of academia. Um, and obviously, the twenty ten university fees hike was a really big moment especially in this country right um especially given that like a lot of the uh, many you know prominent figures of the british left now sort of first came up 
during those protests, for example, you know, first made a made a name for themselves yeah. or, you know, were first sort of heard during during that time. Um, it obviously coincided with uh, Occupy as well, which happened like very shortly after that. Um, uh, and I mean, those protests were pretty intense. I mean, I wasn't in the country at the time because I was I was in the Netherlands. Um, but, um, you know, I was like following them fairly closely. Many friends of mine over here were at those protests. And um, yeah, they were they were really intense. And, and the, the, the police you know, responded pretty violently. A lot of people were really badly beaten yeah. up. Um, I was beaten uh, up. Um, right, sure. <laughs> I, I, I won, I won 20,000 pounds from the police because I was beaten up. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, fair um, I was the education <laughs> officer of LSE at the time. Right. Um, right, right. And so like, was very intimately involved in a lot of that stuff as well. Um, it was very intense and very cool. I also think that yeah. there was... Uh, there is a kind of, I mean, I don't want to just be like a grumpus here, but there is a kind of, um, I don't know, is it, is it called overdetermination? I always never, I never know whether it's overdetermination or underdetermination, but it, of like seeing the, that event as this kind of, this really critical moment in all kinds of things that happened afterwards. But like Occupy, yeah. for example, yeah, it was fed into that, but Occupy was having everywhere and Occupy obviously started in New York. And also like people like Corbin started, there's that book, Matt Myers' book. I mean, Matt's my friend. I totally disagree with that book. But basically it's like, Matt Myers' book is like, Corbinism is because of the student movement. I'm like, student movement ends basically in 20, like I would say, like maybe like March 26, 2011, when the, yeah, the big TUC demonstration. Yeah. Uh, and there's little occupations and stuff afterwards, but it's basically dead by then. Um, and then Corbynism happens like a half a decade later. Like, yeah. can't, I can't draw the links. I'm not, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not like, it was a very important period, but also like yeah, yeah, yeah. what you had on November 10th that year is very different from the demonstrations ever. You had like 54,000 people on November 10th, but like every demonstration that happened afterwards was like 90% EMA kids. Now I'm not saying that didn't influence things. I'm just saying... The people we identify as like part of the British left, who uh, I think were were rose through the rose to to that position primarily through Corbynism. They just happen to be involved in the student yeah. movement. I'm not. I'm not having. I'm not just having to go with people. I'm just saying, like, no, no, no. <laughs> that's my anal- That's my analysis of it, to be honest. But yeah, like like you were saying as well, like in your own experiences in teaching as well. Um, you know, like the the, the kind of students that started to come in afterwards, for example. I mean, I was living in the Netherlands at the time and there was suddenly a massive influx of British students going to the Netherlands because the fees were a lot less there. That's the yeah, reason I Brits went to the abroad. Netherlands. Yeah, that's, 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 that's why I went to, to, to the Netherlands because they oh, were asking really? for overseas, overseas fees. Yeah, back in 2008 already because I was living in India at the time. So they were asking for like £9,000 already at the time. Um, uh, and um, it was significantly less in, in the Netherlands uh and uh yeah like i think that i just just in terms of the the general trajectory that i think we've seen since then in terms of like the attitudes towards education and towards the role that education is supposed to play again last year like you were saying you know the um uh during you know the first couple of lockdowns like i was i was working in a school at the time and you know it was like that conversation was very real and um you know, it becomes increasingly apparent just like 
how much your role is at that point as you know childcare. You know, like I, that's literally yeah. like the, the the vast majority of it. You know, it was so so blatant that they wanted the schools reopen regardless of of anything else, regardless of COVID rates or whatever, so that um, the parents could go back into the office, so that the commercial landlords could stop bleeding money. Uh, you know, and um, and you know, and 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 it was so fucking cynical and so you know so obvious to to see, especially sort of when you're there and when you're seeing you know the complete lack of um, you know, uh, protective measures that are actually in schools, for example, you know, like, where's the ventilation, you know, where's the extra space? I mean, like, there's supposed, you know, social distancing guidelines that we have to abide by, but there's absolutely not the space or the facilities to do that properly, you know? Yeah. So, like, um, it just, just the whole thing was just such a farce, and it was just very, very obvious. I think over the past decade, this sort of, this country's contempt for young people has steadily grown. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's of... obviously, like, has it has, like, it'll have an effect. I don't know if it will. I mean, it seems to be having an effect politically, but I would say that, like, on the point that Arjun's saying about, about how... Uh, um, you know, the ways in which people were saying, oh, get people back, do this in this most kind of cynical way. The one of the most, like, yeah. the, the most uh, uh, obvious ways that this was mobilized, and I, and I was reminded of it, actually, because of, like, the, you know, uh, Sadiq Khan being like, oh, well, we have to undermine the strike and blah, 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 because of women, or, like, the way that, <laughs> like, oh, we have to lead students who are like, what about working class students who want to go to their classes? And, all, like, the way that these kinds of victim narratives are mobilized to like actually undermine forms of solidarity or actually undermine forms of social policy that will benefit the vast majority of people in society. When COVID stuff happened, I remember having this big argument with a real annoying liberal friend of mine. Uh, I hope she's not listening to this. Um, but um, cool and married. Um, liberals don't listen. Liberals don't listen to this show. Um, but anyways, they were like, they, she was like. But it was always, always it was hegemonic this discourse. It's like we have to end the lockdowns because women yeah. who will uh, there's more domestic abuse in the household. I'm like, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, horrific yeah, yeah. that that's the case. But the the idea that like we need to like side with capital, capital. This is why I don't understand. I'll just say this. This is why not to go off on a tangent. This is why I don't understand COVID conspiracies. I'm very sympathetic to conspiracies. Maybe a bit too sympathetic yeah. to them because I'm like, <laughs> dude, I get it. The power structure hates you. You get shit on every day. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, moon landing makes sense. Of course, you want to build up. <laughs> like, 9-11? Come on, explain Building 7 to me. Explain <laughs> Building 7 to me. Like, I get all of it. I understand where it comes from. Fundamentally, I mean, other than the anti-Semitic stuff, generally, it's very it's very uh, critical of, like, capital, in it, like, intuitively in the state and stuff. But this doesn't even make any sense. It's like, capital yeah, exactly. hated covid they wanted to end exactly. this as soon as they exactly. could so it doesn't even make any sense so that the, the states even within like india for example or the u.s or even states that were like independent governments that were more kind of sock dam and like more controlled by like the interests of labor overwhelmingly had broader lockdown so it's like the demands around that where they were like no we can't do this because of this like deficiency in our society or that deficiency in society was like almost like an indictment of like the kind of neoliberal hegemony or kind of retrenchment of the state that like states that had like completely brought these on were totally incapable of functioning. Like even if you look at India, yeah, like, you know, like Madhya Pradesh, Uttar Pradesh, Gujarat were like 
people were like dying in the streets where like Caroline, I'm not trying to present Caroline as some paradise. I mean, it's a paradise compared to those states, but they were like able to function. They had like, they, like, they actually, they're like one of the only states in the country that actually invested in primary healthcare. And surprise, surprise, yeah. they actually fed like well. Relatively, also, they had like, vertically much, much integrated <laughs> production processes. Yeah. So state owned production that they could refit immediately to produce the things that they needed to, to send packets to every household to eat food, you know, in a way that other states simply couldn't do. Yeah, like they did in Vietnam, for example, as well. Exactly. Um, I think about about Sadiq Khan, like if you, as he chose to go down the whole like cynical identity politics to My dad's a bus hide, driver. Oh God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to hide its sort of right wing economic views. He should have just gone all out. He should have really gone for it and just said like, I'm literally a five foot two minor coded person of color. Yeah. Oh no, totally. He would. He would. No, but he basically. Okay, I don't want to sound really like, like, like kind of Marxist, uh, economic reductionist, blah blah blah. But look, I'm sorry, but these kinds of like the ways in which the people obviously there is, you know, it's like there's terrible people that say awful things to him, right? These yeah. people, I'm sorry, 95% of pol- politicians do not have the ability to feel anything, right? So, like, <laughs> don't worry. He's fine. Like, the fact is that, like, these in- these insults are then used as a form of, like, protective layer. Like, when I tell, like, left yeah. liberals, Sadiq Khan, they're like, ooh, they feel, like, uncomfortable even remotely criticizing the fact that he's a complete neoliberal hack. Who doesn't give a shit about workers or tenants or anybody really, other than his own power? But that you, if you say that, they're like, "Ooh, like as if like me criticizing for this somehow means that like there's only two." These people are so against Manichaeanism when it comes to like workers and bosses, but when it comes to like political Manichaeanism, it's like you're either supporting Hillary Clinton or you're like with Trump. Like that's like it's like well, there's something other than these two things, right? Now, what's what's even more pathetic about like people like Sadiq Khan and uh, and David Lammy, for example, is like they do get horrific abuse from like far right racists for sure they do, but then they even try to and fucking Donald appease Trump to well. then they then they try to fucking appease to those people, and that's the point yeah, 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 at yeah. which if I had any left at all, I lose all respect for these fucking people. Honestly, like it's like. You're, you're gonna try to you're gonna try to play the you know you're, you're gonna try to play this um you know the, this uh the, the, you, you know your your identity in such a cynical way uh, um, you know Pakistani family my dad was a bus driver bloody bloody blah, blah, blah and then you know you're not you're you're gonna, you're gonna fucking scab on actual striking workers and then you're gonna try to uh, you know appease the poppy shaggers you know so go fuck oh yourself like I honestly I have no no interest in oh my god I hate him these people so anymore. much. <laughs> Say like David Lammy as well. Like David Lammy's my, my my local MP as well. Oh, like, David Lammy. I mean, I mean the fact that he took over from Bernie Grant. It's like, re- exactly. like just uh, it's like disgusting. It makes me want to throw up everywhere. But also the fact is like he's like he's actually the worst because he's like votes votes for the war in Iraq, votes against every single investigation, and then always fawns. At least Sadiq Khan, he's like robot. Whereas like whereas like for example like Lammy comes to places. And like, does this crocodile tears thing? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. dude, you don't have yeah. feelings. You're not able to feel things. Like, why are you performing this? We all know you're full of shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, also, when he de- demanded after the riots, 
to like for the maximum penalties for children and then he was like they're not beaten enough by their parents it's exactly. like you are exactly. a gross <laughs> gross man I mean, there's 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 a reason why he has the the nickname Bernie Kant. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even know that. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yes, great. Uh, David Lammy is now shadow foreign secretary as of yesterday oh as well. God. Oh wow! <laughs> I bet he's. I'm sure he's very very pleased with that appointment. Uh, can't wait to. <laughs> I can't wait to see him. Uh, you know the same i mean like this is a guy who like you said you know voted for the war in iraq voted against the chilcot inquiry yeah. and like every single he's just a bit yeah. all over the place isn't he i can't re- one thing i do if i'm gonna defend lammy don't do it i remember <laughs> in 2017 when he came and came out and criticized comic relief i think it was a sketch with um stacy Dooley. <laughs> yeah yeah when she goes to like uganda and does the whole white savior thing yeah i i actually he, that's the only sort of critique from a mainstream figure I've seen of the whole uh, like charity industrial complex and yeah, all those. Oh, little, but but uh, it was amazing because somehow Stacey Dooley still managed to play the victim in that. Yeah, in that yeah. Uh, oh my, she's the worst. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she's yeah. <laughs> you got to. I'm gonna hand it to Lammy for that. That took a, took a lot of bravery. I literally don't get. I mean, I don't. I know we could go off on one about the centrist, but it's like, dude. At least back in the day, and I was tweeting about this the other day, but like basically, I was looking at it like there were people that had. I don't really put a premium premium on charisma. Also, charisma doesn't really work these days. Let's be honest. Like, there's a reason why Bernie's like people like real people. People are like, oh, Trump's so charismatic. No, he's not. They like someone who's just like doesn't give a shit. Who's not? Who's the anti-politician? I get that. Like smooth talking, like Tony Blair types, or like. You know, Clinton types. Barack Obama work. was the last one. He was the last one. He he was like basically put the nail in the coffin for that shit. But basically, but they don't even have that. They don't even have that. They have no politics. Obviously, they have no principles. They're like little fucking like worms. But they don't even have any charisma. <laughs> I'm like, have you ever heard what's her name? What's that? What's that person that just that everyone's up to? All the centrists are obsessed with. She just got appointed to something. I forget her name. Uh, but, Yvette Cooper. Yeah, that Cooper. Cooper. I've never heard yeah. her speak any time. Yeah, she doesn't say I mean, anything. What is this? Like, but I mean, you could. You you might have heard her speak, and then you will have forgotten what she's saying while she's saying it. Like, yeah, it's oh, like so that. True. It's like negative charisma. It's a bit like, I mean, like Keir Starmer is like really like the 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 sort of personification of that, really, isn't he? I mean, like just. <laughs> yeah. Um, just just a blank slate to kind of draw whatever political aspirations or agendas you want, really, as like you know, just like a, as a, as a as a tool which will function in a particular sort of machine to enable uh, the reproduction of of, of, a, of a certain system. That's all that these people are. You know, like they're not. Yeah, he's related because he drinks pints. That's, that's his <laughs> any, so, any, any sort of like <laughs> uh, you know, con- conception of like politicians as being you know rep- elected representatives who are you know uh speaking for the people uh or somehow trying to you know uh, instill some sort of social change you know like that does not exist anymore and these people like are the you know are the the the, the you know the, the the working definition of it but know, the thing so. is they're also just playing off a really old playbook like it's just a it is the case i know everyone says we have the right playbook we did have the right playbook we did. We would have won in 2017. They fucked us, whatever. But, and then they fucked us in 2019. Fine. But the thing is that, like, in, we, basically, they are, like, trying to reanimate this thing for the 90s. The problem is that people know, it's like this. Like, I always say this. It's like, 
the, 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 the liberals and the centrists always think that they're the, the least ideological. It's like, no, no, they're the most ideological. Yeah. When you have a crisis yeah, yeah. and you have some like white guy who's not a racist guy waiting, he, the, the only way he can live is by selling his labor power. The only way his children can eat is by and subsist is by selling his labor power. He's standing in this like, like fantasy line for, for work. And, you know, the fascist comes over and says, you know, I can get rid of half this line uh, if we just kick out the black and brown people. And he's like, oh, you know, he's not racist, but like he can get in front of the line. He can feed his family if they're out, whatever. But then like, you know, the liberal comes over and goes, wait a minute. If you even think like this, you're a fascist and everyone can benefit. You can benefit. The workers can benefit. The migrants can benefit and nothing has to change. That's liberalism. The point of the left is to be like, look, fuck the bosses. Let's organize. We don't want to just fight over the problems. We want to take over the kitchen. That's much more realizable in people's minds. They're like, want to burning, burn everything down to the ground, which is what Brexit was to a large extent, which to a large extent, I think what was yeah. Trump was. Because people were like, look, we don't want this system. We want something else. People can buy that. People don't buy. We can all benefit. The contradictions don't exist. People know the contradictions exist. That's why when centrists are like, you guys are ideological. It's like, no, you guys are like swimming in ideology. You're pure yeah, ideology. Yeah. Paradoxically, saying that you don't have an ideology means that you have the most ideology. Exactly, it's exactly. So, it's so dyed in the wool. It's so ingrained that you can't see it. Like you, When it's so totalizing, you, you can't conceive of thinking in another way. Exactly. It, it, one manner of thinking just becomes the default, essentially. You're not... You're not sort of entertaining any other any other sort of mode of thinking. But basically, the problem is some people just some people just read too much F in Orwell. I think something that that's come up as well, like um, the idea of sixty eight, for example, and student politics, and you know the. Um, the centrality of the university campus in sort of left-wing politics in general, you know, like we were just talking about India, for example, uh, and uh, like, you know, JNU and Jadavu University are still two of the places in the country which have been like two of the centres of, you know, anti-government politics and anti-BJP politics, which is why they've been so, you know, they've been cracked down on so, so badly, you know, by uh, by the BJP in both cases. Um and, uh, you know, as a result of this, you know, like, and I, I would be interested to kind of hear your your uh, sort of insight on this as, you know, as, as a professor as well, you know, like this, this obsession that, that exists um, among right wingers about universities and about like campus politics and about like, the weird shit that apparently goes on in campus politics to make students <laughs> mysteriously all radicalized and left wing and the sort of continued culture war and by proxy, you know, just like codified anti-intellectualism, which is kind of yeah. what we're you know starting to see more and more with this government, you know, passing legislation, which is, you know, making it, for example, you know, like the the anti Hamas legislation, for example, which is a very clear and obvious way to just like crack down on any pro Palestine activism, um, yeah. you know, like this kind of stuff. Like this, this is you know having, you know, starting to have increasingly more, you know, real life consequences, right? You know, like from what seemed to yeah. be like really frivolous, stupid, um, talking points that you'd see on like Turning Points UK or like Prager U or something, you know. 
uh, this is now government <laughs> yeah. policy. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's so true. <laughs> I, I, I think um, that, like, I think that uh, obviously there's a the the, the the attacks and the focus by the right on Palestine is to kind of constantly reanimate the the Corbynism stuff. And then that, you know, the Keir Starmer then like bites and his people, his group of flunkies then bite on that. And then they just constantly reanimate that. Of course, they'd love to have they have that discussion in, in that realm. And then like the Tories are able to crush it, which I, I obviously don't care about. But I think that it's like um, it's kind of one of those things that I think it's a few different things. I mean, I I don't know. I'm just guessing that, you know, it's it's that. Okay, universities, the reason why they want the, all of the things we were saying earlier, all the things of the universities that like help capital and help the state, like all this research that's done by like all these underlings who are the top of their fields for private capital and the capital and pharmaceuticals and all these other people benefit enormously from that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the way that like business interests are stabilized and the way that like class relations are like hegemonized through universities they love that shit they don't like the other stuff and they're like how do we attack the other stuff okay that's the first part they also it is the case that like in the same way i remember when i was younger i'd be like i used to have the position that like the draft was a good thing i'd be like we should have the draft because when you only send poor people's children to go murder people then we got we have wars if everyone had to go but then one of my friends was like, well, what that has is that has an ideological effect. You send everyone to the university, to military, everyone, lots of people become chauvinists, right? Like, yeah. think about like, I don't know, Israel. Yeah. I mean, obviously, <laughs> it's a settler colony. It's a different situation. But it's like, people are like, oh, these really left. What, like three of them? Like, honestly, it's like, it's, it is a chauvinist society for a lot of reasons. And one of them is because everyone has to like, have a tour of torturing Palestinians for two years. The Israeli so left like, is, they're just the same nationalists, but just with long hair, basically. Just, <laughs> exactly. They've just got some slight hippie tendencies, you know, like... Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I, whole, I will like, say, I will say this as knowing, like, genuine anti-occupation leftists in Israel, that they they definitely do exist, but it's true, their numbers are, are very small. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> I mean, I know, I know a few... And they're not, like, what, you spend enough time in Israel, uh, you become, it, society changes you. Like, yeah. I'm not saying it's a, you know, it's a habitus. It's like, I go to India, I spend, you know, a month there. I start, like, at first I'm horrified by, the, you know, the vulgar disparities of life. Uh, but then, like, two months later, I'm like, you know, I'm like, you know, indifferent to it. Three months later, I'm like reproducing it in some ways. Yeah. I'm like, it's, yeah, yeah. it's horrifying, you quit, right? You so it's like, I'm not saying it's something, yeah. you become, you're like, oh, wow, why isn't my waiter exactly. giving me food faster? You know, it's like, it's disgusting, right? So it's yeah. like, that's what a society does to you. It's a habitus, right? So it's like, I just think that, be, be that what it may, but like, it's that like, you send people to universities, overwhelmingly, we know, that they, I'm not saying universities are these great places, people leave their homes, they leave their communities, they go to a setting, it's not even what they learn in class, they're in a setting where they have to question things in the ways that they haven't questioned, and it is a kind of political education, it is a consciousness building exercise, and the right know that, but but also it's the case that back in the day, Vivek Chiver makes this argument, so I feel kind of 
cautious in making this argument. It's not that he's the one who made this argument, but I heard it from him. In the 19, you know, 20s to the 19, even before that, but the 1920s to the 1960s and 70s, even in the 80s, the, the left, the organized left, people who were part of like Leninist caters and people who were in various different tendencies and stuff, whether they be anarchists or whatever, they felt that we, you know, there was no idea of becoming a university lecturer and professor. They were like, we are going to join the working class or we'll go organize a community or we'll, you know, like lots of, there was never the idea that you'd become an academic. That was very peripheral to the organized working, organized left. What begins to change in the like 70s, 80s, everyone's like, oh, we, of course, we're just going to join a university. We'll go to a university. So these places did become places where lots of the left, uh, organized left, did go. And it's not, so it's not like when people are like, oh, this hotbed of radicalism, I don't agree with that. But it's like, I remember this guy, person on, who's like, you know, I, I, I'm talking too much shit about people, but like he's also a nice guy <laughs> on Twitter. Anyways, he was like, oh, there's not enough Marxists in academia. And I was like, bro, yeah, we live under capitalism. There's not enough Marxists around. I agree. <laughs> but if there's one place where there might be too many Marxists or a disproportionate representation, it's in the university. Like my entire trade union is are basically Marxists and it's like a committee of 23 people. Not a lot of union committees can say that at a single workplace, right? So I'm not agreeing obviously with the attacks. I, I think the attacks are horrible um, and the free speech stuff is obviously nonsense. But I do think that like there are, there was a changing composition to the, the political composition to the university. And there's a lot of factors that went into that. I mean, the like degeneration of, of the Soviet Union partly contributed to that. Like people stopped being in cater organizations, felt like they didn't need to enter the working class and so on and so forth. But yeah, that's my convoluted analysis. Yeah, I think the the importance and the obsession with university politics and kind of culture wars uh, that stem from it, I think is they're, they're seen as a very early stage of, political development obviously young people getting involved in politics and they're, they're sort of seen as the future battles that will play out in society so there are a lot of there are a lot of uh sort of ideological proxy battles uh for i think the the whole palestine israel thing it's largely just a proxy for you know white people and the kind of brown third world that that i mean that 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 was also sort of plays out in society more broadly you know israel is kind of a metaphor for the sort of white ethno state enclave uh that's that's being threatened and it's a sort of proxy for i i would say it's a proxy for just the wider uh sort of discussion around colonialism and imperialism right yeah, yeah. and and the attitudes yeah. towards that and i think that the you know the the attempts to rewrite the history of the nakba for example and the founding yeah. of israel um, you know, like there's a lot of overlaps there with the revisionist history around the yeah. empire over here, for example, especially at a time when there is, you know, very understandable renewed interest, you know, like in, in the you know wake of like the BLM protests and things like that. Um, yeah. Uh, of, you know, you know, uh, revisiting and, and, and being able to actually recontextualize a lot of this history uh, in the curriculum, yeah. you know, like there's there's a very apparent and very direct, you know, 
effort from the government and from right wing organizations, think tanks, and so on, to 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 combat this. So much about Israel is experimental from a Western perspective. It's sort of seen as a as a testing ground. It's a testing ground, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and you see that with like pretty much all military hardware starts yeah, yeah, off yeah, exactly. totally, in that conflict, totally. and then. Ultimately totally. ends up like with the police of Philadelphia or whatever. About a decade later, it's it's, it's very much a pipeline. They're they're sold as battle tested. Um, yeah, exactly. In these, mass, yeah. In these massive yeah, like exactly. uh, arms arms fairs. Um, I mean, it, it, it's a few things too. It's like yeah, it is a proxy, I guess. In some ways, I don't deny that. But it's also about power. Like, look, you're we we are in a society where Palestinian voices aren't anywhere. You don't even you don't have power to influence anyone when it comes to these things. Honestly, like, where do we have influence? What in the Labour Party? No. Well, in like our institutions, our businesses. I mean, like nowhere, right? In lots of yeah. ways. So then you come to a university campus and you do have more power there. You have the ability to influence. Like, it's very difficult for people. Don't want to to have you know like you have a certain amount of power, and that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And so you were able to assert that yeah. effectively. And that's a bona fide threat. Look, in 2008, when the UCU, my union, the University of Colleges Union, uh, voted to not even institute a, a boycott, but to create a committee to investigate instituting yeah. a boycott of Israel. This is the university's union. I mean, we don't even, what do we, we don't produce anything. I mean, like, but they instituted, the, the, Israeli Knesset had a uh, emergency. They had to shut down and had an emergency cabinet meeting that lasted an entire day to discuss that and to respond to it. I mean, one, obviously Israel is a completely irrational and deranged actor. So like that can speak to that. But the second thing is that like that, it's not that it's just like we're playing these things out. These things have an effect, right? Like it is like, it like, it. you have, I'm not trying to overblow the effect of universities, you know, in South Africa, when South Africa apartheid stuff happened, the drivers of it obviously were the ANC and made it happen, all that stuff. But the international solidarity campaigns, lots of it was in, lots of it was in university campuses, right? It was like yeah. students forcing universities to divest or like, you know, forcing like very speakers and apparatchiks and stuff put forward by the South African embassy, not able to speak on campus. That had a had a hegemonic effect, right, of delegitimizing the state. The state of Israel isn't completely rational. They know that history and know that's why they pour tens of millions of pounds into like, globally into Hasbara campaigns focused entirely at university campuses. That's why, like, uh, like uh, birthright is focused entirely on university campuses. That's why they, like, try to use, like, a kind of albatross around the neck of the left, identity politics around being like, well, you know, we have, you know, like this kind of like um, standpoint of epistemology where like, you don't know what we've been through. It's like, I don't give a shit what you've been through. <laughs> but they think that they can use that. And they used it quite effectively within the Labour Party. I mean, I don't think that's why Corbyn lost. But I do think they used it quite effectively in the Labour Party. But they, they, they haven't been able to use it on campuses. Um, the, but they've, they've attempted to. The sort of battle over South Africa apartheid, that, that ideological conflict which happened on campuses, that has been completely rewritten. It's like everyone, all the big figures in the Conservative Party were, were yes. sort of early, you know... Were in all voting young, 
or the hanging yeah. of Mandela. Yeah, and... yeah, they were all in the Young Tory associations, yeah. <laughs> which were had had all the yeah hang Nelson Mandela posters, and then David Cameron. You know, he attends like Nelson Mandela's. You know, like no, it was Theresa May. It was it was Theresa May. Like I remember, like there was like one week where like in the same week, you know, Jeremy Corbyn is being called like. The equivalent of like some fucking Obersturmbannführer for the yeah. SS or some shit, <laughs> and like at the same fucking oh, time, God. yeah, no, I think it was like the same same week that like that fucking prick, like uh, what's his name, Simon, um, uh, I can't remember his name anymore, but like the guy who um, uh, said that Corbyn would open Auschwitz if given the oh, chance. God. Uh, oh, yeah, and, yeah, 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 um, yeah. Um, and at the same time, um, I believe. Or it was like something very similar to that, but like at the same time, at the same week, like Theresa May is like out there visiting, I think, Robin Island. And like the, yeah. the uh, I think Simon Heffer, like, his name is Simon Heffer. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. And like, and I think the the um, headline was something along the lines of Theresa May walking in Mandela's footsteps. And yeah. I was just like, oh, my, oh fucking my God. God, this is absolute like just the the most deranged you know psychedelic yeah. you know trip that you could possibly ever have like how does this make sense like please somehow someone make this make sense to me you know like this is the it's woman just... who literally put out fucking go home vans you know while she was yeah, the home, yeah, home no, secretary you know she said she put out vans telling people to go home she implemented the fucking hostile environment and like it's just it's just and... a testament to the sort of a sort of Gramscian <laughs> cultural hegemony, just the power of it. Like once you once you have that stranglehold over ideology in a nation, once you have so many people on side in the media and and everything like that, you can just get away with anything. Remember the Rachel Riley yeah. wearing the shirt? Oh, I remember that. Wearing the shirt. <laughs> I, oh, yeah, I, I remember, remember that. Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> wearing the sign, getting arrested, defend the right to demonstrate against apartheid, join the picket, wearing the shirt. But instead of saying that, where she literally, her state and her are like completely defenders, financiers, mercenaries for apartheid and, and apartheid in South Africa. Where's one that says Jerry Corbin is a racist endeavor? Like, how these people? They, I mean, like the like you just literally have to have zero shame, and I, I I don't know. It makes it still. I I I can't. I don't think I'll ever live down that. I don't no, think I, I don't ever think any, will. I don't think any I, of us. I, I can't will, really. I think I can't. It's a trauma. And, uh, it's a it still upsets me so much. <laughs> it's such an injustice, man. It's such an injustice. As we sort of start wrapping things up i'm just also kind of like keeping an eye on the time here um just like uh you mentioned at the beginning right show that that you think that you are quite positive and optimistic about these strikes uh you know coming uh coming up and yeah you think you have a fairly um solid idea of how you think that you're going to win so do you want to break that down for us a little bit and uh tell us about what the next few months might might hold Sure. Yeah. So I think that, um, look, it's a real uphill battle because here's why there's a division between UUK, which is the people that we are organizing against and USS and it's done. Uh, that's done by design. Right. So it's like you're able to then say, oh, well, we, we don't have any power over this. So doing that is a two part removed thing that we have to mobilize against. But you make something ungovernable, you make things un- non-functional enough, then people capitulate. So yeah. uh, this is the first phase of the strike. You have three days now. 
you have another, we want to basically get the largest number of universities to back it. I think that's a good strategy. I think it's a contentious one. Some people are like, we should start right now, hit the ground running. I'm like, look, the thing about a, a strategy like this is the, the new proposal comes out in March and April. We need, we have a six month mandate. That six month has to include a marketing boycott, like I suggested. So when people are reballoting, which is basically this month, next month, uh, wait, rather January mostly, then that gives them the six month mandate. We have a new fresh an, a number of universities that are going on strike after we've gone on strike next term. And that mobilizes and escalates to a summer. So it, 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 it's, it's contingent on a lot of things, but I, I am much, much more hopeful than, we, than I was a few months ago. But it, it will take an escalation style strategy and more universities signing up and voting successfully for the, for the strikes. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, obviously wishing everyone involved the best, yeah, all the, all the best with all the organizing efforts. I mean, is there any way that people listening can support um, uh, the, well, the, the strikes in general or the ECU or, yeah, just the movement in general? Yes. Um, one, they can uh, go join a picket. Um, there's lots of information everywhere. I mean, go to your local picket, go to your local university. There's pickets uh, for at least the next three days, but then also beyond that. Um, and then there's also a fighting fund if they want to donate. You can check up the UCU website. I would recommend, suggest to people that they uh, they donate to Goldsmiths, uh, the Goldsmith Strikes um, Fighting Fund because theirs is a much more protracted strike and it's a local strike and a national strike. Um, and those are the and then there's teach outs happening everywhere this week as well, so you can like go to those. So look those up. They'll they're all online on Twitter. Etc. So. so yeah, just a, a huge thanks in that case. It's been a lot of fun, very informative, and yeah, uh, a really good good fun chat. Um, like yeah, like I was saying earlier as well. How where can people find you on social media? You can find me at Brosive underscore Stalin. The, the infamous, <laughs> the one and the only. The infamous, the one, the only. Oh no, I wanted to change it. I wanted to change it, but they said that Twitter was like, "We'll get rid of your." Your blue tick, yeah. you change it. So yeah. I, I, I that, was so vain that, that I didn't tick, do it. The blue tick is contingent, contingent <laughs> on you actually being yes. Stalin. Keep, keep, keep yeah, it, yeah be, exactly. Being Brosif Stalin. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I did it 10 years ago. I just did it as a joke. And now it's your identity. <laughs> yeah, but that's before the resurgence of Stalinism. Yeah. So I was like, this is a joke. No one's actually a Stalinist. Exactly. And now everyone's a fucking Stalinist. So then everyone thinks I am. And I'm like, I'm not a fucking Stalinist. People out here defending, like, you know, the fucking tanks on Hungary as, like, <laughs> fighting against fascism. And I'm like, you're like, what do you think? I'm like, obviously, I think that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Once again, like I said, a, a big thanks for today. Um, it's been it's been thanks a lot for having fun. me, man. Um, as always, I'm Arjan at Arjanistan on Twitter, and I'm Rory at Real Galane on Twitter. <laughs> we are at Leftover Pod, <laughs> uh, Patreon.com forward slash Leftover Pod. First Patreon episode is coming next week, so keep an eye out for it. It's gonna be a it's gonna be a good one, and. Uh, 
yeah huge thanks as, as always to all of our supporters and if you are able to help if you thought about helping please do it helps us a lot uh especially with patreon content coming up more incentives there you go um as always a, a huge shout out to connor for the production to cardio yep. music to all of you for listening and we'll catch you all very soon cheers from all of you good workers good news to you i'll tell of how the good old union has come in here to dwell which side are you on which side are you on my daddy was a miner and i'm a miner's son and i'll stick with the union till every battle's won which side are you on which side are you on They say in Harlan County there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Oh, workers, can you stand it? Oh, tell me how you can. Will you be a lousy scab or will you be a man? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Don't scab for the bosses, don't listen to their lies. Us poor folks haven't got a chance unless we organize. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on?